Hello everyone and welcome back to experiment number four of Exploring Reality. I'm Costa, this is Barham, and today we're going to be talking about mindfulness. Um, but before we jump into it, I just want to say thanks to all of you who've listened so far and shared your feedback. Um, we're going to try and take that on board and incorporate some of what you've said. Um, and yeah, we're really glad that you're joining us for this fun journey. Um, we're now halfway through our commitment of doing eight episodes. Um, so yeah, I think Byron and I are really excited to, uh, yeah, to push this through. So without further ado, mindfulness. Byron, yes. what's your interpretation of mindfulness? What does it mean for you? Um, mostly a combination of presence, awareness, and um, well, it comes down to presence, like the moment between reaction and action. So most people kind of go through life in a, on autopilot in many ways. Um, and when you don't focus on it, you automatically go to autopilot. And, and when you become aware of it, when you try to become aware of it throughout the day, you have many of these moments where you're when you when you focus on it you actually notice that you're not really consciously taking every decision and i think um mindfulness is one of the best methods to make sure that you actually have the time and mental space to consciously choose each one of your actions yeah that's how i would describe it how about you man so i think awareness and judgment uh sorry awareness and presence, I think, are two very important tenets. But I think actually the, the thing that's missing in, 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 the, in your definition for me is judgment. Um, because I think that in terms of what I've practiced in terms of mindfulness is the ability to observe the present without passing judgment. And because it's that passing of judgment that very often is the thing that we're trying to escape. And it's the thing that liberates us to actually have a more... Uh, a richer and more fulfilling kind of present experience. So I think in, and, and I think this is particularly in meditation as well, where, you know, yeah. we're going to talk about Vipassana and, you know, some of the different schools of thought afterwards. Um, but I think it's that ability to really step back from a situation and observe things as they are and not as you wish them to be. And it's that yeah. as soon as you start applying a judgment, you can be present in something, but even if, but if you're judging it, you're still not fully into being mindful. Um, at least from my point of view. And, you know, I think there's, there's so many definitions out there and there's so many different interpretations, um, but I think it just kind of matters what makes sense for you. And I think in many ways, mindfulness is one of those things where it's much easier to feel than it is to intellectually explain. Um, but <laughs> yeah. hopefully these are at least a couple of core tenants that are worth kind of considering. Yeah, absolutely. I like the disagreement. <laughs> yeah. The All audience right. said and, they want more uh, disagreement. I'm going to disagree with everything. <laughs> right, so we'll give them more disagreement. So um, maybe to set this episode in, in, or to set up a bit of context, yeah. you and I have very different levels of um, experience with mindfulness and meditation. So maybe set a bit of the context. Uh, yes, grasshopper. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll kick off. My. Um, in this conversation, I'm the meditation slash mindfulness noob. And the thing is like, for a few years I've been aware of it and I've practiced it uh, every once in a while. I haven't been consistent, as consistent as I would have wanted to be. Um, what I did notice is that it became relatively doable for me to have many 
mini meditations throughout mm -hmm. a day instead of like having I'm not that good at like consistently doing a 20 minute meditation in the morning. Yep. Uh, I do that maybe once, twice or three times a week. And then the mini meditations throughout the day, just like conscious, like becoming very aware of every step that you take. Yep. Um, and back in the day with karate, I practiced it a lot without mm -hmm. knowing w yeah. what I practiced, right? They didn't call it meditation, well, but well, that's well, about the extent. Yeah. I, absolutely right though. But I, I think this is, this is the important thing to kind of point out, which is that Meditation is now a very popular subsection of mindfulness, but I'd say that there's a lot of things that you can do um, that can fall under the mindfulness category. So, for yeah. example, you know, that famous book, what is it called? Um, the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, oh, yeah. which is like a, a, a famous Zen book. And it's really around, like, you know, how to be present and be aware when you're doing something like, you know, maintaining a bike. And I think when I was younger, um, actually, I used to do a lot of like long distance running. Um, so I used to love, um, and it's a bit masochistic, but I used to love in the middle of the night, in the middle of winter, going out when there's no one else out there and it's kind of snowing and just go for like a 10, 20K run. Um, for me, that was, I don't know, I just experienced some like really weird um, states of consciousness and states of being. Like once you do like a prolonged run where you're just in the rhythm of something and then you kind of like, you know, have this, this, this moment of clarity and inner peace that you kind of get through mindfulness. And so I think that yeah. people do it through sport. You know, some people do it through cleaning. Um, some people do it through reading. There's all these kind of, I guess, like activities that you do where after a certain time, they are very automatic. Um, yeah. So you can kind of, your body can go in autopilot and then you can actually start becoming more aware, more present of what you're actually doing. Um, and I think that's, that's ultimately what kind of mindfulness is all about. And meditation is just one, one strand of that. Yeah, uh, I just heard like a, an interesting connection when you described it like that. How would you describe m the act of meditation in terms of like system one and two? Ooh, okay. I think it depends on the type of meditation that you're doing. So one of the things that I've, I've been doing over the last couple of years is that I practice different kinds of meditation depending on what's happening in my life at the time. So, for example, at the start of COVID and this um, kind of like lockdown, I noticed that I was getting quite stressed. And in order for me to kind of like combat that, I basically went into this mode of doing anapana, which is basically observing the breath. And you just kind of observing the breath of like how you inhale and exhale and the sensations that you feel like around the uh, kind of like the top of your lip and the inner part of your nose. And it's just, you know, you let you're not trying to control your breath you're just sort of trying to observe it as it naturally occurs and observe the sensations that it creates um mm. and so that's a very kind of like passive um kind of state where i think yeah you know you're you're, you're completely turning off system two and you're fighting system one because system yeah. one is naturally going to try and distract you of like hey, you're hungry. Hey, here's another thought. Like, you know, the monkey's just like throwing shit at you and you're just like trying to like ignore the monkey. <laughs> Whereas I guess there's, you know, a, another kind of meditation that I've started doing um, about two weeks ago when I actually, you know, I'm now working on a new project, a new venture, and I'm actually much more focused around, um, you know, performance and growth and, you know, stress is no longer the thing that I'm trying to combat. So now I'm doing this thing called um, six-phase meditation by a guy called Vishen Lakhiani. Um, who's uh, mm. built this thing called Mind Valley? It's a great little program, but it basically takes you through very conscious states of um, sort of like 
envisioning the future, uh, forgiveness, um, a lot of kind of meta meditation, which is like, you know, basically trying to send out love and filling your body with um, just like positive emotions, I guess you could say, of like compassion yeah. and yeah, empathy. Yeah. And so this is actually much more active uh, uh, system too, because you're actually thinking about, okay, so what happened yesterday? How can I feel grateful about that? So you're using system two to kickstart system one um, because yeah. you're trying to get the, the, the monkey to feel, you know, feel happiness and feel gratitude. Um, and you're trying to use, do it with the system to kind of like um, steering the ship. So I guess yeah. those are, those are, I guess, like two extreme versions. One, one where, you know, you're trying to completely turn off system two and just be present and feel um, without judgment. And the other one, it's like, actually, you're trying to think hard through stuff and then connect the feeling to the thinking. Um, so you can kind of like better embody that, that, that kind of state of state of consciousness. Interesting. And there's a whole suite of stuff in the middle. Yeah. 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 I can imagine. And, um, you see like a lot of, uh, interest in, in things like mindfulness and meditation lately. Right. Mm -hmm. So why do you think this is so important right now? Or why do you think it draws so many people these days? Well, I mean, I, I think we talked about it in episode one in terms of, you know, the world's more complicated. We need um, to have much more awareness around who we are, what we believe, what we think. Um, and there's just so much more information thrown at us. Um, and I think from that point of view, like, I don't know, if you just tune into the news and what's happening, you know, if it's not corona, it's climate change, it's police brutality, it's racism, it's sexism, it's politics, it's the economy's crashing. Like, there's so many things being thrown at you from like a data and world point of view that you, you know, I, I think we're just full of so much more stress and anxiety because of all of this extra information coming on us. So many people are just trying to find solutions to try and overcome that and find a, a, a state of inner peace and calm, which I think meditation historically has yeah. been a really powerful tool for. And actually one, one, one important thing that's worth mentioning here as well is that, you know, um, praying is actually an interesting form of meditation as well, because I think for um, lots of people who, who follow certain religions, the act of prayer in many ways is a meditative experience in terms of, you know, it's, it's this pattern, it's this way that you're envisioning, you know, connection with a God or love and compassion with a God. Um, and I think that's, that's something that um, I hadn't necessarily thought about, but it's something that Jordan Peterson um, pointed out really well in um, 12 Rules of Life, which, which kind of stood out to me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, Actually, this, wait. Yeah. Do you think we should? Do you think we should talk about entropy? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Please introduce the topic. <laughs> okay. So, so I guess for, for a little bit of context, um, we we had this phone call about a couple of weeks ago where we started talking about like chaos in the universe, and uh, entropy is basically uh, uh, one of the three laws of thermodynamics um, that says you know systems go from. Uh, an ordered state to a disordered state, and it's really, you know, it's, it's we've proven it by the fact that the universe is expanding, we have the red shift, you know, there's a whole bunch of physics and astrophysics that you can look online on the internet if you're interested in this kind of stuff about, like, why why this works this way. But the conversation that Byron and I had around entropy is that, you know, we somehow seem to be living in a much more organized state of society, right? So if you think about how we started off, you know, in the... Uh, you know, early Homo sapiens eras, life was very chaotic. It was very barbaric. Uh, you know, life expectancy was very short. 
you know, they were dangerous all around us in terms of our physical well-being from predators, animals, et cetera, et cetera. And slowly over time, we became more and more ordered to the point now where we have, you know, cities with very uh, structured infrastructure that gets us from point A to point B. We have rules, we have regulations, we have, uh, you know, banks and financial institutions that, that monitor a lot of stuff. How well they do that is probably a rant for another uh, podcast. <laughs> but, you know, we've, we've become so much more ordered um, at least at the physical level. And so I think part of the interesting challenge now is that all this entropy and chaos has gone from the physical to the metaphysical. Um, so now we actually have a lot more chaos in terms of our identity, in terms of the data that's coming at us, uh, in terms of all the different points of view of like who we are, who we should be, um, and kind of just like just data input, really. Um, and I think it's just really interesting how the chaos has moved from the physical to kind of like the data slash identity slash um, uh, what can you say? Yeah, metaphysical, I guess. That, that's probably the, the best yeah. way to do a capsule. Yeah. Yeah, and don't you think like in, in some ways that people just have this inherent need to try to control more over time? Uh, therefore, we're just trying to capture more territory, if that makes sense, right? So, so far, that has mostly been the physical, and now we're starting to get to the metaphysical. Um, yeah, and, and I think this is, this is basically like the laddering of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like, we fixed all the um, physiological safety, um, and we fixed all, like, you know, the hunger, the sex drives, and, uh, and, and, all, and all that kind of stuff. And now we're kind of, like, moving closer towards the top of, like, self-actualization, uh, sense of identity, et cetera, et cetera. So the chaos is slowly just shifting up. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, what happens? Will we get to a point where we find a set of common standard beliefs that almost everyone kind of understands um, and a sense of identity and self-actualization? Because if you look at, you know, and, and, and you're probably a much better person to, uh, to, to, to comment on this, but you know, all the books around psychology and positive psychology that have, you know, it's, it's exploded um, as, mm -hmm. a, as a field in like the last 20 years because everyone's trying to find a structure and a system to like create happiness yeah. in their life. We're trying to optimize for happiness now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, like it, I think in many ways we had this underlying assumption beforehand uh, where like happiness kind of came from the things that we pursued and yeah. now we kind of see that it's like a separate strand, right? So it doesn't matter how well you achieve what you wanted to achieve. Happiness is also something you still need to proactively create yourself, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely in interesting topic. I think that on, on the topic of happiness, this is actually really well connected with meditation. Um, and I think that one of the most important facets that I've, I've taken from my Vipassana practice, which again, just as a quick reminder for those of you that don't know, um, Vipassana is basically um, a very purist, ancient uh, meditation practice um, that started out by the Buddha and then basically got um, sent out to Myanmar where it was preserved um, quite strictly over 2,000 years, and then about in the late 1900s, sort of 1980s, it then started expanding out from Myanmar slash Burma um, to the rest of the world. Um, but it still kind of maintained a very strict practice. Um, and one of the key tenets around it is this concept of um, Anicca, or this too will change, and the concept of impermanence. Um, and I think that 
once you start through meditation, I think once you start observing kind of like the mental habits of your mind and the, and the uh, and, and sort of the quite a systematic way that you kind of go through different positive and negative thoughts, you start realizing that everything changes and nothing is permanent. Um, yeah. And off the back of that, once you kind of really start internalizing that understanding, once you really start believing that, you then actually can find a much better state of inner peace because when you know when good stuff happens you don't crave for it because you know it will soon stuff will change and when bad stuff happens you know you don't have aversion and you don't have hatred towards the bad experience because you know that that will soon change as well so you're able yeah. to kind of like have much better equanimity um, in the life that you experience and it's in that equanimity and in that understanding that everything changes and everything is transient that you actually have an acceptance of i guess the law of nature and the law of the universe which then actually gives you a lot of inner peace. And if you can anchor that to that inner peace, I think you can also get a lot of happiness. Absolutely. So obviously you've thought about this a lot and you've practiced <laughs> this a lot. <laughs> and I know you're mid experiments right now as well. So maybe like a bit of context, like what are the things that you've done to develop yourself in this area or realm and what like among those things what are the things you would recommend to people to start with i think yeah good question so i guess what have i done um i've done this thing called uh, finders course which is basically a 14-week program where you do lots of different meditation practices all in the search of um quote unquote becoming enlightened uh, you know we can put enlightenment to the side right now because you know <laughs> it's, it's a very polarizing topic for people um Apart from that, I've done two Vipassana sittings, which is, yeah, two 10-day silent meditation retreats. Um, I guess I've, I've used and tried all the apps. So Headspace, Calm, Waking Up Sam Harris. Um, and I guess in all of that, I think the most important thing um, to kind of bear in mind is that you need to find something that works for you. Um, and I find that, you know, all of these practices have their pros and cons. Um, and it doesn't really help anyone being dogmatic around, uh, you know, this practice is better than the other. And, you know, this has been more, quote unquote, scientifically proven to have these and these effects. The most important thing is for you to start and to, like, get into a habit and a practice of being able to just observe and become aware and be able to observe without judgment. Um, and I really think that that without judgment is like a really, really important point. Um, and just finding something that works. And I think that the interesting thing with meditation is that it's a very, very small compounding that you experience day to day. And because it's such a small com compounding force, there's never a kind of like a eureka moment. Well, there, there can be, but for most people, it's never like, oh, okay, cool. So I, I did it for 10 days and now I'm like, you know, 50% better. And I can tell that difference because yeah, the change yeah. is so gradual. You, it, It's really hard for you to actually feel that you know, you're, prog you're progressing um, because you don't have that instant gratification kick. But I think for anyone that's been meditating for a really long period of time, I can almost guarantee you that if they stop meditating for like even a week or a month <laughs> and they haven't done it, they can automatically feel the difference. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. Not, it's, it's not the gain that you sense, it's the loss because the gain uh, is so small it, and so compounding. Interesting, because like... Um, one observation that I had when I tried meditating a lot for a while, um, you don't necessarily notice the positive effects mm 
mm. in the beginning, right? You don't yeah. know, like you just said, right? After 10 days, you're not just like, oh, hey, I see way sharper. Yeah. But I did notice that some negative effects were removed, right? Yeah. So in some ways, it's easier to focus on the things that you don't have anymore than, mm. than the things that you kind of do gain. That yeah, makes sense. absolutely. Um, and I think that's, it's a real challenge for people to get their heads around because I think we've just been programmed so much around gratification. And, you know, if you think about like, you know, we both work in, in tech with technology and, you know, a big tenant of building great technology is thinking about user experience, you know, yeah. what's the minimum time of magic where like, you know, how can you get the person to get benefits in as little time as possible? If you look at all the viral content that's out there, it's like, you know, how do you get, uh, you know, five ways that you can grow your business now, uh, you know, like all this kind of clickbait stuff, everything is focused around making it as easy as possible for you to get gratification. And meditation seems to be one of those things where, I don't know, it's almost like cleaning your house. Just because you cleaned your house last weekend doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it uh, for the next year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's actually, and actually this is, this is a really interesting maybe metaphor that meditation in many ways, like, like clearing the mental clutter of your mm. mind. Yeah. And just because you can't, you can't see it, like, you know, when you're cleaning your house, you can see where stuff's dirty. It's much harder for you to observe the clutter and the mess that you have within your mind. But you actually yeah. forcing yourself to sit down and meditate or for you to do any kind of uh, mindfulness practice, it actually gives you an opportunity to step back and observe and almost view yourself in third person. It's like, oh, okay, so actually I did get stressed out yesterday about that thing. Why did I get stressed out? Interesting. Yeah. Do I often get stressed out when someone says this to me? Huh, okay, what's that about? And you can kind of do this like diagnosis and this de yeah. decluttering in a much more intentional way. Yeah, absolutely. And um, something that, that just jumped up, I've heard you talk eloquently in one of our calls about the relationship between meditation and the past, right? Like so meditation and time in general, but meditation mm -hmm. and, and how you deal with the past. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, okay. So I find that there's a lot of, you know, when you look at psychology, um, a lot of psychology uh, in terms of helping people uh, become better is dealing with trauma of the past. Now, part of the challenge of dealing with the trauma of the past is a lot of the quote-unquote drama happens when we're really small. Like, it's really easy to fuck up kids okay no wait that's ah that's kind of true but i guess it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but but i guess like you know it's um you don't give kids enough attention um and then you know that they grow up um and they have certain uh, attachment issues stuff like that you give kids too much too much attention and now you know uh, we go out there and we, we find it really hard to actually form meaningful relationships because we get too attached to the first thing that shows us love and compassion. You know, it's like this Goldilocks period of like doing like not enough or doing too much. Like it's, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, and I think that, you know, it's um, because I think we've talked about this before, but because I think like with early childhood development, um, a lot of the stuff that's getting programmed into the brain is, is getting programmed directly without any filters and without any kind of judgment. Um, it's really easy for quote unquote bugs or limiting beliefs to get implanted without anyone having like a, a real conscious understanding of why that's happening. Especially so, when you think about the compounding, right? Yeah. So, right, so yeah. Do, you want, do you want to elaborate on that? 
What do you mean? Well, in the sense that like, um, so you just use the concept of like compounding, right? How, mm-hmm. how something like grows over time. Mm-hmm. And I think especially when you look at like early childhood developments or early childhood experiences, those are experiences that you... Um, you derive some kind of meaning from Mm -hmm. but since you cannot like you just said rightly so you cannot like uh, as a young kid you cannot have a a judgment based on a bunch of perspectives for example therefore you're just stuck with this but that thing compounds so you Mm -hmm. kind of start thinking like it and then you start seeing those things confirmation bias and that only um, makes it stronger right whereas when you have the same thing at an older age it becomes easier to like change it before it compounds out of control yeah absolutely right and and i guess like um i'd be curious how did your parents respond to you doing well in karate <laughs> oh, that's a super interesting question um I think quite typically (laughs) in the sense that like my mom was just the loving parent who Mm -hmm. uh, if she could she wouldn't even go to the matches like Mm -hmm. she she came to very few of my tournaments because even if I would get a first place she Mm -hmm. just didn't want to see her boy get hit right (laughs) yeah um so and and she was proud like when I did achieve stuff but uh generally she she wasn't there that much Mm. in the matches and I fully understood as a Mm. kid as well whereas my dad is the one who fully kick-started this whole thing and um I would say with him it's quite the opposite my dad and I often had um a fight is a big word but like like a heavy disagreement after a match and often it's because like of the typical dad's uh, son kind of struggle right where yeah. i tried my best in the matches but i didn't succeed on the level that i wanted to succeed mm. therefore i disappointed myself but you kind of see the disappointment in your dad <laughs> and then some kids are very good at like just dancing around that feeling i wasn't right like so i just <laughs> would confront it and since my dad and i are both like very similar we had these like often these kind of fights about it mm. right but and as a kid, of course, that's super shitty. <laughs> to be honest, it's mostly shitty. And I did love my dad very much. And I also mm. am very aware of the fact that he helped me get far in life. But as a kid, you just don't want the the negative side of anything, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think as I thought about it more, um, it's a perfect balance. And I think that's just the the, the paternalistic and, the, mm. and, and yeah. like the dad and the mom, right? Like on the one hand, you need verification that who you are is already good enough. That's what my mm-hmm. mom gave me. And on the other hand, you need someone who just For keeps sure. on saying that you're almost good enough, but not quite yet. Just remember yeah. that, right? <laughs> and I think that combination yeah. works really well, like f- at least setting the right foundation for a, for a character. Nice, nice. Now that's really good. Um, I guess the, the reason why I kind of went down that line of questioning was maybe just to kind of highlight the point of, you know, I think a lot of kids struggle with this whole concept of, you know, I win something I do really well and I see my parents' <laughs> love and admiration and appreciation for that. And now yeah. there's an association between achievement and receiving love. Yeah. And so I can only feel worthy and feel loved if I've achieved something. And I think, you know, yeah. this is just really to double down an example of, uh, you know, quote unquote, whether, whether trauma is too strong of a word for for you listening to this, um, take it as it is. But I guess there's just like, you know, these mental patterns um, and belief systems that get ingrained one way or another in really subtle ways. 
And I guess the thing that I, I, I found via meditation for me, especially during Vipassana, is that you, know, you spend such a long time observing the breath and then observing the sensations that come out in your body. Um, because Vipassana is basically, you, you, you do this practice of um, scanning the body from head to toes, head to toes, head to toes. And then, you know, um, because you're sitting there and you're meditating for like 14 hours a day, your knees would start to hurt, your back would start to hurt, your neck would start to get stiff because you're supposed to be perfectly still in all this. And, you know, when you start hurting, you're not really supposed to move, or at least, you know, the, the further along in the program that you get, the more you're supposed to sit there in, um, God, I forget the word now. Uh, but basically, you're supposed to be resilient to, to movement. You're supposed yeah. to just observe the pain. And the more yeah. that you observe the pain, observe the pain, observe the pain, at some point it dissolves. Yeah. And in that process of dissolving, I guess, like, that's the – and I'm not exactly sure how it works. And this is just kind of a metaphor that I've used to explain the insights that I've gathered from it. But in many ways, I feel it's like, okay, now I'm feeling pain, I'm feeling pain, I'm feeling pain, I'm feeling pain. And somehow your, your mind and your memories are working in such a way where they're kind of like almost going through uh, a cutscene or a Rolodex of here's all the times that you felt pain in the past. Hmm. And all of a sudden, like, you know, those images and those thoughts come out to the forefront of your mind. And then you're kind of like, huh, interesting. This experience that I had in my past, I'm still associating with pain. And for me, I've I had this like quite a few different times where, you know, I'd be sitting there, I'd be meditating, I'd be feeling a lot of pain, that pain would dissolve. And in the dissolving of that pain, I would also be able to integrate and work through some of those childhood issues that I had. Um, so, for example, you know, I'd, I'd remember conversations that I had with my grandfather when I was really young. I remembered yeah. promises that I made to myself when I was like 14 around the kind of man that I would be. And then, you know, I'd, I'd realized that I'd, I'd feel I would have felt really sad at particular po moments in my life. And I thought that I was sad because of the circumstance. But what I didn't realize is that actually on a deeper level, I was sad because I had failed to meet the promise that I made to myself when I was 14 years old. <laughs> Yeah. And this is really strange because, like, even saying it out loud, it sounds really stupid and kind of like very woo-woo, non-sciencey. But it's it's just fascinating how it works that when you when you kind of are able to observe and you kind of then you know dissolve that pain. In many ways, you're dissolving a lot of different. You, you can dissolve a lot of different kind of pain that you've experienced in your past. And I'm not yeah. sure if that's a coherent explanation, but hopefully it's at least in the right direction. It, it's hard to put this stuff into words. Yeah, definitely. And and a lot of it is like very subjective, right? Yeah. But that's the thing that I'm um that I find fascinating fascinating about mindfulness and meditation in general, that it's it's a science. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the interesting thing. It doesn't sound sciencey often because mm -hmm. of like words like enlightenment and because of like how things are super subjective, how it's yeah. about something that like a promise that you made to your 14 year old self. Mm -hmm. I uncovered a similar belief last week, literally a promise I made to myself when I was 14, super interesting, something very small, which compounded into like yeah. some kind of like aligned behavior, right? Um, but the interesting thing about meditation, I think is that they've done extensive studies and they actually see like there's just a step-by-step -step approach which in essence you can use to get to a specific kind of mind state and of course yep. it's not the same among different people but i do think this is one of the most advanced kind of like hacks if you kind of yep. want to use the word um, absolutely and i think the most interesting thing is that i guess a lot of meditation is focused around the breath because the, the breath is one of those things where 
you can, it's automatic, but also you can regulate. And there's not many functions that you have in your body um, that are automatic, but you can also uh, regulate. Like in terms yeah. of the heart's automatic, but it's really, really hard to control your heart rate going up and down the same way that you well, can control your breath going up and down. Super interesting because there's a bunch of research literally on this topic mm. and it seems that you can change your uh, parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous system, but that's mostly with the breathing, right? Yeah, when exactly. That's, about. that's what I was so going. You, <laughs> right? So you, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Then I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, please continue. Go on. <laughs> right now, I think in, in short, it comes down to like, um, for me, this is part of this bigger trend where a lot of the things that we thought we as humanity didn't have control over, mm. we kind of do have control over. We just didn't know what the right buttons were, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing here, like, um, I think another reason why, why mindfulness is starting to become so widespread is because of this, this awareness that your breathing is actually in some ways a lever to mm. your subconscious in many yeah, ways, exactly. right? So, and one interesting story here, like I had, um, I also practice Kung Fu and my teacher there, he's a very high level policeman. And uh, uh, so he, he gets into like very, very complex and, and murky situations very often. Right. Um, and one dinner we were like one evening we were having dinner and I asked him like, so when you're in a situation which is extremely stressful, what do you do to make sure that you still have yourself in control, right? Because he is in the shittiest of situations. And he literally said, it's very simple. I focus on breathing. <laughs> and I've also heard that from a bunch of karate teachers. So I think it's, we found it in different ways, right? But we're starting to see that like controlling your own breathing is such an interesting and such a deep way of controlling how your mind works. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well because it's, it's, it's this... It's this lever that allows us to switch from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system, right? And yeah. I guess this is a point like relaxed mode to fight or flight mode. And the most yeah. interesting thing is actually that, you know, people associate meditation with just be going into that relaxed state, that uh, sympathetic state. Is that the right way around? Yes. Uh, well, yeah. uh, sorry, parasympathetic is the relaxed one. Yeah, yeah sorry, parasympathetic yeah. state. But actually, you know, if you look at someone like Wim Hof, who's a crazy Dutch guy that I love. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for those that haven't heard of Wim Hof, like he's called the Iceman. He holds like a whole bunch of um, Guinness World Records, like swimming under a football pitch in the Antarctic. Crazy, crazy guy. Um, he's even like cured certain diseases just through meditation. And he's regulated his own body temperature, like really quite an astounding human being. Um, but he does this thing where you basically... Um, breathe really intensely and then hold your breath and that actually puts you into the, the fight or flight response and uh, a lot of times actually you know if, if, you, if you do it well enough and, and um, with the right form you can actually even get to like even psychedelic type levels of experiences just by basically pushing your brain to such a deoxygenated state um, that then when you actually start breathing again like you're, you're kind of like you know quite a euphoric um, type experience and that's really interesting where, you know, um, I'm thinking about certain times where I've been training and, you know, when gyms were open, you could go and, and, and train. Um, I would actually do certain kind of uh, breathing exercises to get into the sympathetic nervous system so I could actually get out, uh, you know, a higher rep or push like more weight uh, on a certain exercise. So it's really interesting how, you know, it's a tool where you can both use it to relax, but also you can use it to like actively 
put yourself yeah. in fight or flight where adrenaline kicks in and where you have like kind of like more focus on like the motor neuron kind of control and strength. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, I've been experimenting in quite a bit with Wim Hof the last half a year. Mm. Um, very interesting because I think especially the combination of, for rookie meditators, right? Like, mm. <laughs> like personally, when I tr when I start meditating, I don't get into a flow state for the first mm. ten minutes. I just like I'm, I am this monkey, right? Like I'm trying to like keep myself still, right? So I'm still in the yeah. monkey mind, and that's that's quite okay. But I think um, I experimented with combining Wim Hof and mm. then meditation after, yeah. and then it's super interesting because the mm. thing with the Wim Hof, like, uh, wait, one small digression. So I have an HRV meter, which is like mm. the heart rate variability, nice. and I measured my heart rate variability and my heart rate during Wim Hof. And it's super interesting to see because it rises very hard when you're mm -hmm. in the the deep breathing in and out mm -hmm. uh, quickly, right? Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, when you um, kind of like when you hold your breath, then you feel all the tingling, but also you see the heart rate variability stabilizing so quickly, right? Mm -hmm. And what I found out is after I did that for a while, when I would do the Wim Hof method uh, breathing first. And then I would do meditation. My body would already be primed for yeah. a relaxed state. Therefore, nice. the meditation would go better, right? So these kind of things you can experiment with. But in terms of Wim Hof, I think the, the, the real interesting thing is that for me, he has shined this light on how you can, you can use meditation for this, I guess, like heightened state of alertness and physical performance. Um, and I don't know, it, it just seems like, you know, we're just learning more and more about the breath as a, as, a, as a tool and it's becoming it's becoming so important and actually you know even from a human connection point of view they've done like a whole bunch of research i know around um you know, you know mirroring is a great tool to build the relationship with someone so you can mirror like their actions their gestures their tone of voice etc but one thing you can also mirror in order to form a connection is their pace of breath hmm. um and, uh, you know, this is actually really true for sex as well, um, just as, a, yeah. as, 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 as an area just in, in order to be mirroring. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting how this, this, the, the tool of the breath has so many different um, entry points in terms of us entering different levels of connection and different levels of, of kind of consciousness. So from that point of view, you know, breath work um, and meditation and mindfulness, all of this just feels like such an such an interesting thing to go out and explore. Um, and I think for the people listening out there, you know, if you haven't tried meditation or any, uh, any of this stuff before, um, like I said, at least find out what works for you. There's different practices that work with uh, people in, in, in different ways. And you will naturally find that it's easier for you to either do it when you wake up or when you go to bed or during lunchtime, there's walking meditation. Um, I think it's just having a level of commitment to saying, you know, I'm just going to spend a month Every week, I'm going to try different things to figure out what really resonates with me um, and just kind of like do it as, as a commitment because generally, I think the my life has fundamentally changed for the better in so many different ways just through this yeah. practice. And I think you can you can say the same as well, right? Ab yeah, absolutely. Even though I've done it at a way, um, way more basic level, right? But even mm -hmm. like... I do feel even if you try meditation for two weeks and you fail miserably and you're not even... 
the tiniest bit closer to becoming more aware during the days even then you have this awareness of how your breath is important and you'll yep. notice when in a very high stress situation your breath does dramatically increase right so yeah. it's sometimes it's even a meta 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 reflection so um i think it might be very useful for listeners to have like a few pointers on things like issues that they will encounter when they try this stuff because <laughs> like you've seen a bunch of things um, yeah so <laughs> yeah I go guess, ahead man take it away so I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in this and there's a lot of great resources out there that you can check out um, like you know like I said Sam Harris waking up is great um, the headspace guys have a lot of different stuff and you know different styles appeal to different audiences what I would say is that very often when people start this journey, they get super frustrated with the fact that they can't focus. And the fact is like, oh my God, I literally sat down, I took two breaths, and then like my mind started thinking about pizza or something along those lines. And people just get, they end up creating so much judgment towards themselves around how bad they are at meditation. And that's so the opposite of the outcome that you should be trying to get to. So yeah, I think... True. The, the way to, 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 to think about this and approach this is maybe I'll give a, an analogy. Do you know how they tame wild horses? Not yet, but you're about to tell me. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so basically, apparently, when you have a really wild horse, what you want to do is you want to find a really big fenced field and put a stake in the middle of the ground. And then you want to tie a bit of rope between the horse and the stake. And every day, you're supposed to basically just slightly shorten the leash. So on day one, the horse can basically go out and roam and do whatever the fuck they want. And day two, the circumference slowly gets slower and slower until you get to the point where you've gradually reduced it to such a point that the horse is walking around in this kind of like, you know, two square meter area and they're not stressed out about it. They don't feel confined. And I think about meditation very much in the same way. It's, it's that ability of slowly being able to get more comfortable, the fact that you're going to roam, but just in that process, you're going to tame that horse, you're going to tame that monkey mind uh, more and more. And from them being like really crazy and wild, you're slowly going to get to the point gradually over time. And, you know, it might take a month, it might take a year, it might take 10 years. You know, there's, there's people that have been meditating their entire life and uh, are still working to that ability to, to control the monkey, to control that, that horse, if you follow the analogy. Um, so I think that's a really useful way to think about it. Um, and it also just kind of highlights the importance that naturally you're, you're trying to tame uh, a lot of, a lot of na natural urges. Yeah, I would say natural urges yeah. of your mind to be scattered. And you shouldn't, re you shouldn't create hatred or, or kind of like self-loathing uh, in that kind of process. And just know that it's a journey and it takes a really long time. Um, and it's totally natural for you to actually, um, you know, go go elsewhere when you're meditating. And I guess just to yeah. follow on that, maybe uh, uh, another analogy is that in many ways, when your mind starts wandering and you said like, oh, I was supposed to be focusing on, you know, this gratitude exercise is supposed to be focusing on the breath. It's in that moment that you catch yourself that your mind has started wandering, that you pull yourself back. That's actually what matters. You know, if you think about exercise, that's when you're doing the rep. You've noticed that you, yeah. your mind has wandered and you're then trying to bring it back. And actually, in that process of bringing it back, I guess the important thing to wear is that you shouldn't be trying to force your mind to bring it back. You should just accept without judgment that, okay, my mind's wandered, but now let's focus yeah. on the breath again, as opposed to, oh, I'm a fucking idiot, I've wandered again. Um, yeah. So yeah, those are a few, yeah, yeah. I guess, different things that I've observed and seen, and 
and kind of anecdotes that I've taken from from other teachers that I found really valuable, at least for myself. I think that's great, man. Um, so first of all, that'll be useful. And uh, you've talked a, a lot about it, like reducing or, or preventing yourself from like self-judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's very useful to understand here is that in the end, very often your body just needs some kind of like drive to to <laughs> show what it's feeling, right? And uh, for example, when you're very fearful, mm-hmm. it's just a bunch of energy coming out of your body in such a way that you that you that other people perceive it as very fearful. But you can transmute the same kind of energy of, of your fear into laughter, mm-hmm. or the same with like rage, right? Like so, for example, when um, in the very unmindful event where I knock over my tea and it's all over my desk, you can have two gut instinct responses, right? On the one hand, you can be very um, <laughs> either like positive mad or positive sad, right? Mm. Uh, or on the other hand, you can kind of like act quickly and just laugh about the fact of how somewhat stupid you were. And I've noticed that for me at least, being able to laugh about myself in the stupid moments has helped me a lot with understanding like ah okay so i actually do judge and i can slightly change how i judge Mm -hmm. myself simply by starting to laugh for example right and that's one example and there's many like these um one other point that i think might be useful and i think you're you're better suited to talk about this um one of the things that every meditator will experience once they start like one of the Mm -hmm. biggest obstacles i i personally think is that in the moments that it matters the most that you meditate, or at least in the moments that it matters the most that you're mindful, it's often the hardest to do it or to be it, right? Um, Do you have any like thoughts, uh, routines, or anything that would help people in in trying to make sure that during these crucial moments, they kind of push through? Well, I I think it's, it's, it's largely around you build the routine when it's easy, so you can re- like reap the benefits when it's hard. Mm. And I think James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, I mean, if you haven't subscribed to James Clear, like his weekly newsletter is absolutely incredible with like full of gems that talk a lot about how to build better habits and how to put stuff on the path of least resistance. But this is why usually it's the easiest for you to, for people to like get into meditation, either first thing in the morning or last thing at night, because then that just creates a, a real habit that's easy for you to to keep going um, even when the time gets tough. But I think it's like that with a lot of things, you know, like when stress comes in, very often we urge for sweets and pizza and stuff like that, even though from a, a cognition and a fuel point of view, it's it's nowhere near the most efficient uh, thing that you should be consuming right now. In fact, that's the time to double down on like salads and light foods and, you know, you, you don't want to be clogging, clogging your brain with, with that kind of shit. But hopefully... At that point, you've you would you would have made sure that you only have like healthy stuff in your house. So your path of least resistance is to eat well. And it's I think a similar kind of habit uh, here with meditation, which is just like you know you build a routine when it's easy, so you can get the benefits when it's hard. Great, absolutely agreed. Um, and 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 this kind of stuff, like simply being aware of it, uh, helps as well. All right, shall we tie it off? Do you have any, uh, like, parting notes? <laughs> parting notes. Um, yeah, again, what, one thing actually we haven't mentioned is uh, yoga. So I've started getting into yoga recently 
And that's a very mindful and meditative practice um, just because it's, I guess it's, it's, it's about flow and actually being quite rhythmic with your breath. And I think all of these things are well suited to the space, like this whole space of mindfulness that we've just discussed. Um, and I think, you know, mindfulness overall is great. Just finding moments where you can go for a walk. Um, you know, Cal Newport in his book, uh, Deep Work, I think talks about this really, really well around like the structure and the habit that he'd gone to like clear his head of, you know, taking long walks in nature, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah. I think it's more important than ever that we try and create moments for us to be mindful. Um, and I think meditation is just one part of that. So even if meditation is a little bit of a big jump for, for you know, for the people listening, um, I would recommend, yeah, just, just finding a way that to be mindful for yourself. I think that's just fundamentally quite important. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And, um, maybe one more thought that, that I want to share is like a lot of the people that are now very much into meditation started out saying that it was definitely not for them and way too woohoo kind of right so mm. i think that's it's useful to like at least keep an open mind and look at what it does because even if the actual act of meditation is nothing for you i also know uh one guy who <laughs> he doesn't like meditation but what he does instead is just intense staring so he doesn't close his eyes he just looks <laughs> at one point and it's <laughs> to me it's super interesting but it works for him, therefore it's fine, right? Um, so just <laughs> experiment with what works for you. All right, yeah. it was good. It was good, man. So yeah, that was, I guess, quite a lot of stuff to cover about meditation, but hopefully it's been uh, a useful high-level overview of, of all the different facets of meditation, mindfulness, etc. Um, but let's leave that there. And next week, we're going to be talking about news, uh, which I guess is going to be quite well connected to uh, a lot of what we talked about this episode. So tune in then, and thanks for listening.